Welcome to Zoom Through the Bible. We are studying our way through the Bible, taking some time out midweek to jump online and dig into the Word of God. And whether you are in the Zoom with us tonight or watching us on Facebook live or catching us afterwards on podcasts or all the, you know, all the things, um, we appreciate you spending some time. We hope that we can dig into the Word of God tonight and you leave this study learning something about God and drawing closer to Him. So, uh, with that being said, we are all the way up to Genesis chapter three. I say all the way like we've made significant progress, but we've made it two weeks, two chapters, third week, third chapter tonight in the book of Genesis. I'm really excited about today's study. If we can get through the first four verses uh, in the next half hour, we are going to be in good shape. Um, But let's pray, and then we will jump into it. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your word tonight. Father, we ask that you allow it to be a uh, a light to our our feet and and a guide to our path, Lord. We ask that you just bless it, that you you give us something from your word tonight to allow us to draw closer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. And uh, uh, so tonight we are in Genesis chapter 3, and we'll start off, like I said, with those first four verses. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. All right. A couple of things. Um, you know, not a big deal what we're studying today, just the fall of mankind, um, just kind of deep, uh, tough subject matter as a whole. Um, we're going to try to keep it as light as we can, but I think there's some really cool things that we can see here. The first thing that I want to start off by saying before we really dig into this is there's sort of an underreported cool thing about the Garden of Eden. When we talk about the Garden of Eden, we talk about paradise and we think lush beautiful landscapes plants animals food forever naked frolicking there's all kinds of things happening in the garden of eden very underreported thing apparently there's talking animals as well because there's a serpent that uh, is just sitting here talking to eve like it's totally normal we're not going to pay any attention to it nobody really says anything about it but um there he is um talking to eve so that's kind of cool um a very underreported thing happening in the Garden of Eden. But the serpent, of course, is a equivalent to Satan. Now, the text doesn't implicitly say it here that the serpent is Satan. It just calls this person the serpent. But the Bible as a whole refers back to this moment and tells us that this is indeed Satan. Uh, we're not going to go there. But if you're taking notes, you can jot down Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 13 through 19, Job chapter 26, verse 13. Isaiah 51, 9, and then Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, and chapter 20, verse 2, all point us back to this moment and refer to this serpent as Satan himself. So we know that this is Satan talking to Eve to get her to do what she's been asked not to do. So this first portion of scripture, I kind of have titled, How Satan Attacks the Word of God how Satan attacks the word of God, because we see that here as we look through these scriptures. So let's start off with step one. Here's kind of the step-by-step on how Satan attacks the word of God. Step one, question your knowledge 
of God's word. The first thing that the serpent says to Eve is, has God indeed said? Has God indeed said? Sort of questioning Eve's knowledge of what is the word of God. What are God's instructions to us? Are you sure that's what the Bible says? Are you sure you aren't allowed to do that? Maybe you're misremembering. Maybe that's not what it said. You're only human. You could be forgetting. And when you think about this as sort of a weapon, a first step in the process of Satan attacking the word of God, think of how powerful this particular strategy, this particular step was for the early church, which is why like the Reformation movement and the creation of like the printing press was like huge Because for the most part, we can guard against this first step simply by opening up our Bibles. Most of us have a Bible that's in our pocket at all times by a Bible app that we have. Or at the very least, we can get home, we can crack open our Bible, we can say, hey, um, Satan was tempting me by saying, does God's word say this? And I can just kind of go back and look it up and see what God's word says. But there was a huge chunk of the church where people weren't able to just crack open a Bible and say, does God's word say this? This was a huge strategy that Satan was able to use against the early church because they didn't, they weren't able to go back and research. Although if we don't get ourselves acclimated um, to the word of God, this can be difficult as well. We have to hide it in our hearts as the Bible says, Um, you know, you got to get a trusted translation. That's why we do a word for word translation. When we study um, the Bible like this verse by verse, Um, do some Bible study. It's easy to get confused with what the word of God says. It can feel Um, like, you know, it's a big book. So um, it can be hard to go and find the specific chapter and verse for what you're looking at in the context of the whole thing. And speaking of context, that kind of takes us to uh, step two. So step one, Satan will try to question your particular knowledge of what God's word says. But step two will be, he'll attempt to subvert or pervert the word of God. He tells her, it says that, uh, he says that, um, you shall not, the scripture says, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree. Instead of what God actually said was, which was of every tree of the garden, you may eat freely, but for this other tree. That's what God actually said. The way that Satan interpreted that, the way that he subverted that is to say, you shall not eat of every tree. Whereas God said, you can have every tree except for like we've talked about so far. The word subvert means to undermine. The word pervert um, has a lot of connotations in our culture today, but uh, textbook definition of it means to alter from its original meaning, the word pervert. Satan does both things here by undermining the meaning of what God told Adam. Instead of hearing everything is at your disposal, except for this one rule, he is, he's only hearing the part about the except for. Um, and so he is altering the meaning to make it sound like God is not allowing him to have freedom, so to speak. Um, and so our society, and I would say our society and the church as a whole is as plagued with step two right now as like the early church was probably plagued with step one. The church in America is absolutely plagued with step two right now because of man subverting the message of the word of God and perverting the meaning to fit their own agenda. We have many that would quote the Bible and attempt in an attempt to make a point, 
but take something completely out of context and in some cases be the exact opposite of the message that God is giving us. Unfortunately, um, whereas with step one, there was the opportunity for some human advancement, such as the printing press to help, you know, subvert this strategy that we can't really rely on a human advancement to fix this particular strategy that Satan uses. Um, what it will take is men and women of God have to humble themselves. Humility is probably the key here for a Christian to be able to take a step back and say, you know, the word of God that, that, I'm, that I'm saying that the words that I'm speaking in the name of God, do they match up with the will of God? Do they match up with the spirit of God? Do they match up with the heart of God? Um, do they match up with the fruits of the spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, long suffering, forgiveness? Many of our words that come out of our mouths that we say in the name of God don't have those fruits of the spirit of God hanging on to them. And I, it takes a, a real level of maturity in the man or woman of God to stop for a second and say, hey, I, I call myself a Christian. I say I'm speaking in the name of God, but am I speaking a subverted, a perverted message of the word of God just to fit my own comfort level, my own agenda, so to speak? And that, that takes a lot of self-reflection, um, but is necessary uh, for where we're at today. All right, step three. So if you can't get somebody to forget their knowledge of God's word, they don't remember what it says. If they were, I remember what God said. And if you can't pervert the word of God, change it from its original meaning. I know what God said. I know the context that it was in. If you can't take something out of context, if you can't get people to forget the word of God, then step three would be take the sting out of sin. Um, when he says, you shall not surely die. That's not going to happen. Um, the Essentially, the next aim by Satan is to minimize the consequences of sin. Come on, he's not going to kill you. Um, you know, you'll be fine. Everything's going to be good. Um, the truth is, there's always consequences to sin. For Eve, the consequences of this sin that she's about to have are innumerable. Um, but for us, we have to remember there are always consequences of sin. Um, there's a great story that we're going to get to in a few weeks um, about um, Jacob and Esau, which talk about it really leads us to the consequences of sin. Esau has um, been given the birthright of his family, um, of his father, Isaac. Um, as the oldest of the two brothers, that he's going to be the, the thin red line of the entire Bible, the, the, the chosen birthright by which God is going to bring his savior, Jesus Christ, his son into the world. He's been given that blessing and he trades it to his little brother, Jacob, for some soup because he was hungry in the moment for that small moment of feel good that has everlasting consequences. That's what sin is. And, and again, when, when Satan can't get us to question our knowledge, when Satan can't get us to take things out of context in the Bible, when we know what's right and what's wrong, the next step for Satan is to just try to get him, well, it's, what's the worst thing that could happen? To make us forget about the consequences of the sin, to make us forget about the everlasting consequences of sin and do it anyways. 
for a moment of feel good. And so we have to keep that on our mind and, and be aware of the strategies of Satan so as not to, to fall into them. All right, let's get on to the next section here, verses five through seven. It says, for God knows that in, in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant for the eyes and that the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of it and of its fruit and ate. Um, she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. All right. couple things. Um, I have this back to our little note slide here. I have this titled the fall, which this is the actual, um, fall of man, so to speak, happens right here when Eve takes of, of the fruit. Um, let's see here. Uh, sure I got this. Perfect. So um, this is the fall. Now, many, many will take this particular section to talk about Eve's role in the fall of mankind. They'll make toxic statements about how, of course, it was the woman that was unable to resist the temptation of the devil. We're not going to do any of that because, I mean, by now you know me. Um, what I will, will like to focus on is how important it is to teach the word of God to those who are entrusted to you, to you specifically. Eve was not given the order to not eat of this fruit directly by God, to stay away from this tree. It wasn't that order, that rule was not given to her directly by God. One can surmise that Adam told her about it later on. And the fact that she was not prepared to resist this temptation has more to do with Adam being a bad teacher than it does anything with Eve being too weak to stand up against the temptation. The lesson here, we all have people in our lives that have been entrusted to us to teach the word of God to. We all have sort of that sphere of influence and the ability to teach the word of God to people who have been put in our lives. As parents, we have our own children in a marriage, uh, in a marriage situation, man and wife, kids in a church, new believers, friends, etc. We can't be like Adam here. I sort of imagine Eve like walks up to Adam and Adam is really busy. He's probably playing a game with the frogs, like real life frogger. He's just like moving the frogs across the field. See if they get stampeded on or something. He's just having some fun with God's creation. And Eve walks up to him, like taps him on the shoulder while he's really focused on something. And she's like, hey, what's up with that tree over there? And Adam's like, oh, yeah, stay away from that. We, we don't go over there. And Eve's like, why? And she's just because, you know, God said, you know, just don't go over there. Just just be cool. And let me get back to my game here. You know, that kind of husband wife dynamic that I know nothing about always much attention to the wife at all times. But um, you can imagine some sort of lesson happening sort of like that. Um, and you can understand potentially why Eve was not prepared based off what she had been taught by somebody being put in authority over her to teach it um, that she, you know, was not ready for that situation. We have to teach the word of God as it is given to us with the same fashion that it is given to us, the same passion that it is given to us. A couple other notes from this section. Um, number one, some say some may say that Ad, this, this is why 
why didn't Adam just refuse Eve? Why didn't he just, no, I won't take the food. To which I would say, this is obviously a single person who does not have a wife, who thinks they can just sort of refuse whatever their, their wife serves them on that day. That can't happen. As a married man, I would say that a couple of weeks ago, my wife made some god-awful barbecue chicken. She'll admit that it was god-awful. Um, Catherine was here. She had some of it. She choked it down um, just to be polite. And I just decided I was going to politely not say anything and just not eat. And, um, you know, it's a couple of weeks and we're still hearing about that. So you don't refuse what your wife gives you. This is just an important aspect of marriage. Um, the other thing I would mention, I just wanted to bring that out. There was no real biblical sign there, but free marriage counseling. Second thing I'd like to th throw out here is the fig leaves. The Bible says that they took fig leaves and fashioned fig leaves because they were aware of their nakedness after they ate of the fruit. Number one, they decided to go with fig leaves, which are, if you know anything about figs, thorny and emit a dust that is very itchy, would be very itchy. They literally, through sin, chose from naked freedom itchy leaves is what they chose in terms of their garments, which is sort of sin in a nutshell, right? Sin in a nutshell is going from the freedom that is our lives without sin to the itchiness, the itchy sweater that is sin in our lives. But that's what they chose. But I also want to point out, and we're not there yet, um, but you'll see when we get to verse 21, that God tells us that he, that God specifically, after he's handing out consequences and everything we're about to get to, he decides to take a second and he I, and makes them, it says tunics of skin. He sort of he makes them like a leather jumpsuit. He goes from itchy figs to a leather jumpsuit, the nice clean leather of a of a skin tunic. And I can only imagine that like God is sitting there and we're gonna talk about the consequences, and he's handing out consequences, and he's you know doing the Danny Tanner of all time talk to his his kids about how bad they were and what it means that they had to do. I don't want to minimize it by calling it Danny Tanner, but because it's a really important place that we're going to get to, but he's given them this talk and it's you messed up and all of these consequences as a result. And as he's about to leave, he looks over and he's like, are they really wearing fig leaves? Are they really wearing itchy fig leaves? <sighs> I know I told them they were going to have to toil and that their brow was going to be beaten and that they were going to have problems in childbirth, but here, take these leather jumpsuits these leather j-lo jumpsuits or whatever they are take these put these come on let's go i'm gonna get you back up that kind of thing i just think it's kind of a cool thing to think about that as on his way out from this situation he looks over he's like they're really wearing itchy like like adam and eve are just sitting there like okay god i'm sorry and scratching and scratching and scratching okay i'm sorry and scratching will you stop scratching look we're gonna get you better i have a plan we're gonna talk about that here in just a second all right next section um, which I forgot to put on my, oh goodness, it's been a day. I forgot to put this on the notes slide. So for, pretend that right in here, there's Genesis chapter three, verses eight through 11. They don't exist there, but I think I have a slide for them. Uh, I do verse eight. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, cool of the day. And Adam his and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the ground. Then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the fruit from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? So I, I it's not on the note side, but I titled this section the confrontation. This is this is when God confronts Adam and Eve with their sin. A couple of notes just on this particular area to know what God sounds like strolling through the field. As long as I've known, um, as come to know Jesus Christ, when I got saved, started reading the Bible, this particular verse, verse eight has always stood out to me as something that's just so precious and like hashtag goals really for your walk with Jesus Christ. Verse eight, and they heard the sound, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. To, to know God so intimately that you are able to recognize the sound of him entering the room, to be able to recognize who God is just by what it sounds like. And you sort of imagine him sort of walking through a field, grass sort of at his, at his fingertips and kind of making his way through creation. I don't know what that sounds like. I can imagine what it sounds like, but Adam knew God so intimately that he knew immediately who it was. Not that it was cattle rustling in the, in the trees. It wasn't bugs making their way in or creatures slithering through or whatever it is. He knew what God's footsteps sounded like. We could even say as so much as that this is the closest in terms of a relationship that mankind has ever been with God. And that as a result of what's happening here, We've spent thousands of years since just trying to get back to this point in one way or another. The other thing I want to point out here is verse 11, when he says, but we were naked and God said, who told you you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? And it brings back, it makes me think about the, uh, um, the conversation we had last week when we talked about, you know, when Jesus said that you know, you were blind, so you knew no sin, but you claim so that you can see so that your sin remains, that who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were in sin? And that's sort of the, the crux of the whole thing. All right, a couple more sections here. Uh, verses 12 and 13. Then the man said, the woman who you gave to me, gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. And so what's happening here, what I have this section titled, which I actually do have this on our slide is the blame game. So the next section here that happens is the blame game. No, she did it. No, he did it. No, she did it. But the serpent made me a couple of things here, just on this particular section. There's a lot of blame. There's a lot of finger pointing, pointing around. One of the things when you're just growing up in life, this is just sort of a life thing. And any parent really recognizes this and really any any person as they kind of go into adulthood is that one of the signs of becoming an adult is understanding, taking responsibility for the consequences of your own actions in your life, not allowing other people to say, well, I would be successful if this person didn't do this, or I would be successful if this person didn't do that. Our oldest, um, our daughter is, is 12. She's about to be 13. She's about to kind of take that turn into becoming a young adult. And this is something we've been working on hard with her is taking responsibility. Why isn't your room clean? It's not because of your, your brother and sister. It's not because of this or that. You have to take responsibility and the consequences of your own actions. And, and, and believe me, she's 12. Um, we're trying to get her to that point. There are people uh, into their 40s who are still trying to figure out how to take 
responsibility for their own actions and actually become an adult age really doesn't have anything to do with it. Um, but that's one of the signs of becoming an adult. Similarly, taking responsibility for your own sin is a sign of maturity in a believer, understanding that you're the one who chose to sin. You weren't overcome and tempted beyond your control because the Bible tells us that we won't be, that he'll always make a way out. It wasn't someone else's fault. It's, it wasn't, it's your choice. Once you take responsibility for it, you can start to live your life. Um, the reason why it's so important is because when you take that responsibility, when you understand, hey, my actions resulted in sin. And, and the reason that's a big deal is when you understand what it cost because of your sin, what Jesus had to do to fix your sin. And you can start to take ownership of that. And then when you do that, you can start to live your life in, in a much more intentional way so that you know what pitfalls are going to lead you to sin, things you can sort of avoid, things you can stay away from, people, places, uh, mindsets that you can stay away from so that you can avoid it in the future. But that, that comes with some maturity of taking responsibility. I messed up. I shouldn't have been there. I shouldn't have been with this person. I should have done something different. I could have avoided it this way. But there's a lot of Christians that go their whole lives and don't. They blame their they blame their sin on oh I'm just I'm just I'm just a guy I need some grace I'm just saved by grace and and I I you know whatever it is or or if my wife wasn't this way I wouldn't sin or if my kids didn't drive me crazy I wouldn't sin or if I made more money I wouldn't sin and um you got to take ownership for what is yours just just like you got to take ownership to become an adult you got to take ownership of your own sin to become a mature believer all right next uh, next section fourteen through nineteen. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly. You shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel to the woman. He said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake in toil. You shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of, out of it, you were taken for dust. You are, and to dust, you shall return. So this section, um, I have titled, um, the consequences. Here's the consequences. God is divvying out consequences to all parties involved in this very first sin. First to Satan, um, he, he, to the serpent, he divvies out a consequence. I'm going to circle back to that. I'm not going to go over that right this second. Let's talk about the other two. Then to the woman, he says that in sorrow, you will have during um, the delivering of babies. If you ever notice, um, there are many species on this earth. When they have a baby, you don't even really know that they're in labor. They just sort of, there's a baby. There it is. Um, now, um, it's not always easy to do. Some people need some some pets, some animals need help delivering, but you don't typically see the anguish that goes on to the faces of other mammals in childbirth, as you do, obviously, with women. The other part of this that I'd like to focus a little more time on is that he says um, that your, 
I'm going to go back to the scriptures because I want to make sure I say it right. He tells the woman, um, verse, verse 16, the end of verse 16, your, you, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This is the first time in the Bible. Obviously, we're early on in the Bible, so there hasn't been a lot of time to do it. But this is the very first time where the principle of male headship in the home is explicitly stated. In previous chapters, it's implied. You know, you can make an argument that it's been implied that that the man is is to be the headship of the uh, and have the authority in the home. It's implied by the fact that that woman is being made first for man as a helper, and that woman woman is being made out of the side of man. It's sort of implied that man comes first, that kind of thing. But this is the very first time where the idea of the man is the head of the home. Um, is is implicitly stated here it literally says and he shall rule over you um and it makes you think that the idea of authority which has caused such consternation on generations of christians is really only required because of the fall of man I was just thinking about this today as I've studied this portion of scripture and I've taught it many times. This is the first time this really jumped out at me because ultimately male headship or God ordained authority of the male in the home boils down to essentially who is to blame for sin in the house. God gives his direction to the home and the man is in charge of making sure that his family is built up with the word of God, that, that they're taught the word of God. And they're the ones who have to take the blame when anything happens under their authority. And so if there were no sin, then this really wouldn't be needed. I just sort of thought that was sort of an interesting thought that all of that, which has caused a lot of consternation amongst Christians for a very, very, very long time, um, is all based off of the fall. It's all based off of sin coming in. If there was no sin in this world, there really wouldn't be a need to say, well, who's in trouble, you know, who's the authority that I have to blame at the end of the day, which is what, when you boil down male headship is, is all about in the first place. And then to the man, um, he tells them essentially you're going to have to work for your food. To this point, I sort of imagine that like, um, you know, like, a uh, uh, somehow like fruit would fall down onto a shell of a turtle. And then the turtle would like bring it over to the, to Adam and Eve, while it's like on their back, like a little turtle table and while they're like relaxing, leaning up against like a, a bison or something. And they just sort of are eating their grapes and like the food's just right there for them. And now part of the, the curse of man is that they have to work for their food um, and, and that their, their food, their food will only come with as much work as they put into it. God told Adam that he needed to work the, the land, but the way that this is sort of implied is that there was going to be food regardless. Now, if you don't work it hard, you may not get food. And even if you do work it hard, you may not get food difficulty and basically um, your work essentially. And then the, the, the main one, the main curse that he, that he gives Adam um, is, is in verse 19. Um, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it, you were taken for dust. You are and dust. You will return. The main curse is death. That sin requires death and that, no more eternal life, essentially, um, for, for everybody. So these are all the consequences that are handed out. Last section here. And Adam called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin. We talked about that earlier and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, 
The man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest we put out his hand and take also the tree of life, eternal life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim on the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every, every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So out of mercy, and we talked a little bit about this last week, out of mercy, God removes the possibility of eternal life from mankind. Now that sin is present, eternal life is not, is, is no paradise as long as sin is available to man. And so um, God removes them from this situation. Before we close, I want to circle back to um, the consequences portion, to the consequence, um, to the point where God is handing out consequently and specifically to the portion where he's handing it out to Satan. And I like to just point out as we close here that even amongst all the bad stuff for all the parties involved, that even amongst God sort of letting, you know, letting them, letting these parties know specifically his creation, man, um, Adam and Eve know of the consequences, how bad they messed up. I mean, this is, I don't know. It sounds corny to say this is the biggest mistake of all time because it is the biggest mistake of all time. Like the concept, the burden of that mistake. Now we all make mistakes. You know, we've been praying as a team for a family who made some really bad mistakes and it had some horrible consequences we've been praying about um, as a team here. Um, and, and I think we can all sort of think about that, that we make bad mistakes and there are horrible consequences as a result that ultimately I think we're all trying to avoid those bad mistakes and those horrible consequences here in this moment. I can't even measure. I can't even my, my mind can't even wrap around how big of a mistake Adam and Eve had made and how bad and what a burden must be on their hearts and minds at this, at this moment. I don't know that God, even in his, in his grace could even allow them to understand how big of a burden that they were putting on the rest of mankind, their, their children and the generations of children, you know, at the very end of it, I don't think it's, it's incidental that at the very end that we just read that the Bible says that Adam named the woman Eve, for she was the mother of all mankind. There's a little bit of insight into the fact that they understand in this moment, the generations that are going to come as a result. So I can only imagine the burden and the hurt and the pain that is coursing through Adam and Eve in this moment. And with all of that being said, in the midst of all of this, we find verse 15, where it says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he, capital H, gotta love that capital H, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the very first mention of the rescue mission of the savior that God is sending to this world. That even in the midst of the hurt, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the agony, that is the consequences of the fall of man. In the middle of all of that, God throws out there, but hey, I have a purpose and a plan for you still. And it's not based off of your actions because if it was based off of your actions, there's no way it would come to know. It's based off of me and the plan and the purpose I have for my people. I'm going to send my son down to this earth and he is going to bruise the head of Satan, 
the bruise, the head of death. He is going to defeat death. Now, death will take him. It will bruise his foot, his heel. It will take him for a moment, but ultimately he will defeat death on that cross and give us a way for eternal life again, the way that we were designed to do. So even in the midst of all of the hurt and agony, God gives us that little portion of grace, that little portion of just that God mercy that we need and that hope that God gives us through the man, Jesus Christ. And so wherever we're at this evening, whatever we're, we're dealing with, whatever hurt that we're dealing with, we can think about this moment and know that Jesus Christ is still our, our light, our little glimmer of hope in the midst of it. And then we can put our faith and our hope in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you are our hope, that you are our salvation, that you are what we can look to in our time of agony, in our time of hurt. Father, we thank you for that. We ask that you bless those that have taken some time to be able to listen to your word tonight, Father. We ask that despite anything I've said, will you work amongst your people, Father? We, we just we praise you and we thank you this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, next time. We'll jump into Genesis 4, which is the biggest brother-sister fight of all time. I used to fight with my brothers and sisters all the time. I used to fight with my cousins a lot in the way that like siblings would fight. My grandmother would have to come in with a fly swatter to get us uh, broken up here. Um, this needs a little more than a fly swatter is what we're going to talk about next week. But uh, um, think about that as you're reading through Genesis chapter 4. And with that, we are done. Have a great evening. Cat, hang on the line for a second, okay?